Welcome to Call to Action, a School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific podcast. In Season 3, we will have guests join us to share how their work and their commitment to SSND's corporate stance for comprehensive immigration reform plays an important role in transforming the world through education and awareness. We look forward to discussing this topic on migration together as we stand in solidarity. Welcome to another episode of Call to Action. I hope you tune into our last episode with our guest, Sister Jean Ersfeld. In that episode, we focused on School Sisters of Notre Dame's dedication to affirming a multicultural reality and the dignity of each human person. I think that topic really transitions well into today's topic. It's great to be with you again, Adam, for this uh, next session of the podcast. And I've been thinking a lot about what Sister Jean shared with us and um, as she introduced us to scripture and what do the gospels say about immigration, migrants, the stranger among us. And in some ways, those gospel values um, that we're all called to live really interface with what U.S. immigration law and policies say. So here we're going to be looking at Immigration 101. And we're thrilled to have our guest for today, and who will be joining us is Sister Jan Grigorchis. And she is with us to share some of her experiences of navigating and working with immigrants, as well as the immigration system here in the United States. Sister Jan, we're so glad you are joining us for this episode. And as we begin, could you just share a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and where you're living right now? Thank you, Anna Marie. Um, I am the oldest of eight. I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I would say that my parents introduced me to community life. I've been a school sister of Notre Dame now for 53 years. And those years have led me to teaching and living in community in Grand Rapids, Michigan and Superior, Wisconsin, then to parish ministry in Raymond and Clara City, Minnesota and Huntington, Indiana. From there, I lived in community with our sisters and the indigenous Mayan community of Guatemala for 12 years. What were some of the biggest issues that you helped immigrants deal with during that time? Well, at that time, I really wasn't working with immigrants, but those years of working in Guatemala transformed my life. I learned so much from the people, especially the Mayans, and continue to share a deep friendship with many. People were extremely poor in physical goods, but they were so rich in family and cultural beliefs. The country suffered a 36-year civil war, and I was privileged to take testimonies for the Truth and Healing Commission called Remi Recuperación de la Memoria Histórica. People shared horrific memories of seeing loved ones killed or being forced to give their lives so that their community, their village, could survive. The people suffered so much, but never had I seen such resiliency and willingness to begin again. So was it there that you first met um, folks who were coming up to the United States? It was. And I was quite amazed um, at who was taking the risk to leave their country and their family that they loved. Very often, they were parish leaders, the head of the parish council, the youth leader. They were people who loved deeply and were willing to take a risk for the betterment of their family or their community. 
Can you share a little bit about why were they taking this risk? Why were they coming to the United States? Perhaps to be able to put food on their table, perhaps to send their children to school. Just working in the States one day would be the equivalent of a month's salary in Guatemala. And families would depend on what the people were able to send back. Have you had experience working with people in that process or just working with them once they've gotten detained? Uh, I have not worked with people in the U.S. trying to get immigrant status. I just meet with them in a pastoral visitation way. We're invited into the, the jails, the detention centers, just to listen to people. They can talk about whatever they would like. But it means so much to them to find someone who can speak their language. And that's how it was with me when I first went to Guatemala. I didn't know Spanish that well, but people were very patient with me. Sister Jan, how long have you been visiting detainees? Probably for about seven to eight years now. And before the pandemic started, we were able to go on Thursdays and Saturdays, both in Kenosha and Dodge County, Wisconsin. Once the pandemic started, all that face-to-face -face visitation was put on hold, and we were able to do Zoom calls. In that situation, I visited with people not only in Wisconsin, but also Indiana and Kentucky. And it's amazing now that the pandemic is, is less, that we are invited back to visit because it, it makes such a difference to the atmospheres in the detention centers to have people who are willing to come and just be a compassionate presence, willing to pray with people if that's what they would like to do, or just to listen to their stories. Sometimes we're able to make phone calls for them. So why are they in these detention centers? Well, often because they've been in the States most of them undocumented because they just haven't been able to have their uh, hearing. And so many of them get picked up for driving to work because they can't get licenses. Or they get picked up because they are driving and there's a taillight burnt out. Or they ended up parking in the wrong parking lot. Such small issues. If it happened to any of us, we would probably just let go with a warning. But they get put in detention centers, and sometimes they are there for more than three months. So these are immigrants who are being put into these detention centers. So how do we define an immigrant? Well, an immigrant is a person who comes to live permanently in another country. I think, you know, if we think about our grandparents, many of them were immigrants. An immigrant can become a U.S. citizen if they are at least 18 years old and have been a permanent resident for at least five years or three years if they're already married to a U.S. citizen. Uh, and they meet all the eligibility requirements, and there are many. But in these detention centers, I have met people in their 60s and 70s who have been in the States for over 40 years. And I think it just tears my heart apart when I see these grown men in tears because they love and miss their family so much. As we know, if we go to another country, we have to have our passport. And you have uh, some countries you need visas and some countries you don't need visas. What are some of those visas? What, what is that documentation they're looking for or need? Can you, can you say a little bit about that, Jan? 
you know, you can go to the internet and find pages and pages of all the different kinds of visas that you can get. But it takes so long. There are so many different kinds of visas. But most of the people coming to the States might have somebody who is already here from their family that might be able to get them in. There are visas for spouses. There are visas for unmarried children under 21. In those kinds of visas, um, one of the things I think you're pointing out is they apply for these visas and then have to wait so long to obtain them. So even in these these family visas. They wait forever. And so many people say, why don't they just get in line? Well, there is no line. They put in their applications and sometimes it takes forever for them to hear back. Besides the family visas, there are student visas, there are work visas. Sometimes they are for years, sometimes they're only for a couple of weeks. And I've had some friends from Guatemala who were thrilled to get a visa for two months just to pick strawberries. There are diversity visas, they call them, and that's like winning a lottery. What is a diversity visa? That means that they can put their application in. There's no cost to apply. And um, there are 55,000 diversity visas available through a random computer selection if you happen to be from the right country. If there's a country that's already had their limit over the last five years, they get put on a waiting list. It, it's, it seems so random how you explained it, the qualifications and how people get granted those type of visas. And in order to even put your name in, you have to have a high school education or its equivalent and have at least two years of work experience. You have to know some English or be um, taking an English proficiency class. Just for this year, people who won that lottery have until September 30th to claim it. You know, when we look at those categories for family-based immigration, you know, the the easy one, of course, would be if you are a U.S. citizen and you want to bring your spouse or unmarried minor children or your parents. But as soon as you yourself are what we would call um, a permanent resident, so someone who has permission to be here in the United States, they have what we call, we always, we laugh and we call the green card. Um, it's technically not green. It, but I think at the beginning it was when they first started issuing green cards, permanent residencies. But it's very hard to get and it takes a lot of time. And then you have this whole system of family-based visas, which also are very difficult. And as you had said, Jan, a lot of it depends on what country you're from. So if you are from Central America or Mexico, those visas take so much longer to process. And, and when we look at why they're even applying for those visas, these folks usually were coming because of stress or duress from their place, their homes of origin. You want to share us a little bit of those stories with us and your experience on the border? I worked at two different places on the border. One was in the U.S. and one was outside of the U.S. in Mexico. In Mexico, I was working with a migrant, with a lot of migrants. And a migrant is a person who chooses to move. Uh, they are internal migrants who, who can move within a state, a country, or a continent. And then there are external migrants who choose to move to a different state, country, or continent. But um, working in Mexico, I met people moving from one place in Mexico 
to the border in Nogales, hoping to ask for asylum, which unfortunately I had to tell so many people that our border is closed at this time, except for a few exceptions. And that was all due to Title 42 and our pandemic. I learned something working in Mexico because the majority of people were trying to escape violence, persecution. It was my first time working with the mafia and organized crime. Wait, <laughs> wait a minute. I didn't want to cut you off, but, <laughs> but that's not a normal response. I learned about how they work. <laughs> when you say that, did you have to actually work with members of those uh, criminal organizations or were you working with the people affected by it? I was working with, with the people affected, the, the, the migrants who were leaving one place, coming to another in their own country. And their stories were, were horrific. I worked with um, mothers and, and pregnant women who were escaping the mafia just to save the lives of their children. And what I learned is that this organized crime group comes in and they either want your land or your daughter. There were so many mothers trying to save their teenage daughters. Um, and this one story, oh, I'll say the father went to the police because the mafia wanted his 16-year-old daughter. The day after he reported what they wanted, he was found dead the next day. Another lady, and she was a young woman with, with a small child. The mafia came in. They wanted her land. She refused to give it. And because she refused, they chopped off two fingers of her two-year-old. A lot of this is happening in Guerrero, Mexico. They leave their towns in the middle of the night. They don't tell anyone because they don't want to be followed. Some of them have no idea where the heck they're going. Some people have heard of refugee centers, migrant centers that will take them in and give them hospitality and, and help them with the advocacy work that they need. We, we've talked about a couple terms. Like I understand that you can get classified as a refugee or an asylee. Yeah, and a refugee is usually classified before they come to the country. So the, within because of the country they're coming from, it's been acknowledged by the U.S. government that there is persecution, whether that persecution be about race, religion, politics. And so they have been designated as a place where they can come in as refugees. And they are vetted before they actually come in. But an asylee, and I think that's why it's a great question and what we hear a lot about, especially on the border of Mexico, is that person who also is persecuted. Um, due to gender, race, religion, politics, and as are these horrific cases that you that you are sharing, Jan. So oh. they come to the border seeking protection. So what group do they fall in? Like people that she was telling stories about whose family members are getting affected by the the mafia in their country. That type of treatment. What what classification does that put them in? Well, they're called asylum seekers. They are hoping to come to our port of entry and ask for asylum. And with my last experiences, so many of them weren't even able to get to a port of entry, or if they did, some of them were kept overnight 
in very cold, inhuman conditions, hardly given maybe a half a glass of water that they said was dirty or the smallest little burrito to eat. And some were just sent back right away without even being able to tell their story. And some came back. You could tell they were kicked around. They just came back with so many bruises. So here here we have where they have to prove that they're being persecuted. You know, I, Jan, when you were sharing that, I remember when I was living in Guatemala, a young man was working for a finca owner, and he was driving a, a truck with cattle, just transporting cattle. And he came back from a trip one day, and um, the owners of the finca were loading drugs. And so they said, well, from now on, you will be part of our trafficking of drugs. And of course, he did not want to be a drug trafficker. He quit his job, but of course, then he was threatened thereafter. They threatened him. They threatened his family. So he fled Guatemala and came up through Mexico and into the United States. And he couldn't ask for asylum because he had no way to prove these horrific things were happening. And that's that's what gets so difficult, I think, as you tell your stories, Jan, is for one, they're not being listened to. And then secondly, how are you going to prove, how are you going to have the documentation about these incidents that are happening? And so often there is no documentation, but you have to trust what people are sharing as stories, but that doesn't happen on our border unless there is documentation. I'm trying to connect some things here when we're talking about the law of it and all the different terminology. So once they're classified as a refugee or an asylee, do they have to go through that process first before they can even start applying for visas? Well, most refugees, if they apply for refugee status, and you know, one of the new statuses besides what Anna Marie already mentioned is that people are climate change refugees now too. Because of the climate, their fields are gone or their villages are wiped out or whatever it might be. But they get their refugee status and then they are entitled to protection in the United States and some help. If they receive that status of being a refugee or an asylee, I think, as you're saying, Sister Jan, that allows them protection. It also is allows them to have work permits so that they can settle, so they can, first of all, most of them learn the language so that they can obtain work. Sometimes those statuses are temporary, um, which that becomes complicated also. So if they get a status for up to five years, but then you need to leave. But there still could be persecution in their homelands, or they could still have crises. That's what becomes really difficult. Now, most of them, once they've applied and have been able to get what we call a permanent residency status, which we call the green card, then they can stay longer and they can work. They receive an identification, a social security number so that they can work. And after 10 years, they then can apply for citizenship if they so choose. I was going to say, if, if it's temporary, um, like Anna Marie and I going into Guatemala, we did not need a visa. But people coming from Guatemala to the United States need um, a visa. And usually it's a tourist visa. It's temporary. They might give you up to 90 days to come in and visit. They have to go to their embassy, like in Guatemala City, they have to present their bank account, a statement of how much land they own. They have to pay a fee of like $150. And like in a very short five to seven minute interview, they're rejected. 
don't get any money back. They have to wait another year before they can reapply. It, it all just depends on who's working at the embassy that day, it seems. And it's it gets to be really embarrassing because we, as U.S. citizens, get to travel almost any place in the world without too many complications. But people trying to get into our country have to go through hoops to get in, and then they're not trusted. It seems like in that relationship for immigrants coming into the U.S. and dealing with it, the only simple thing I can compare it to that popped in my head, it has to be like how I feel trying to contact the cable company. It's this big entity that you have to contact to get a solution for yourself, but you can't ever quite get an answer from, or you can't ever quite get any kind of you know, movement towards a solution. And I kind of feel like that's how the system is set up for immigrants. We can help you and we want to help you, but we're going to make you wait. We're going to make it as hard as possible for you to to make progress. I think that's why we talk about at the beginning, as we say, we would like to see comprehensive immigration reform because the system, for one, is sometimes so difficult And if you goof up and you miss a date or a deadline, then you could lose your entire status. It's also the fact that sometimes we don't have enough people working in the system. So as Sister Jan was describing on the border, those who are seeking asylum, we don't have enough asylum judges or immigration judges who would listen to their cases. So the cases get so backlogged. So another reason why we say that we need comprehensive immigration reform. Um, I think that as as Sister Jan was also sharing, those who are being detained for unreasonable amount of time. So why can't that be processed in a much quicker way? And sometimes why are they de- being detained for infractions that don't seem very just in terms of if you're a U.S. citizen or if you're a non-U.S. citizen? So how do how do people get judged? And that goes back to when we talk about, does everybody get treated with the same dignity? And it doesn't seem to happen. I like to say we're working for comprehensive immigration reform, but also compassionate immigration reform. And Adam, what you said is just working with IT or whatever it might be that you don't get the answers that you want. So many immigrants and migrants say they're not telling us anything. You know, if we would just know what to do, we would do it. But they don't get the answers that they're, I mean, they're asking questions, but not getting answers. And as Anna Marie said, we just don't have enough people working the system. So as we've been talking, this is, we call this Immigration 101. And I think if anything else, it didn't make things clear. It really just shows how complicated this system is. So we probably need courses of 303 and 505 and <laughs> 101A, 101B, 101C. <laughs> but I, I just hope that it has our audience to understand how complicated the system is. And not only complicated, but so many times, as you said, it's broken. It's not functioning. It's not working. And that is why we need comprehensive immigration reform. You had mentioned compassion, uh, Sister Jan. Would you mind doing something for us that we've asked all of our guests to do? And that is to read uh, the Prayer of Immigration that's found on our website. The prayer is called, Give Us Hearts, and that's exactly what we need, hearts of compassion. God of love and compassion, may we always recognize your spirit 
in the refugee family seeking safety from violence, in the migrant worker bringing food to our tables, in the asylum seekers seeking justice for their families, in the unaccompanied child traveling in a dangerous world. Give us hearts that break open whenever our brothers and sisters turn to us. Give us hearts that no longer turn deaf to their voices in times of need. Give us eyes to recognize a moment for grace instead of a threat. Give us voices that fail to remain silent, but which decide instead to advocate prophetically. Give us hands that reach out in welcome, but also in work for a world of justice until all homelands are safe and secure. Bless us, O Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Sister Jan, for being with us today. You used the word compassion, and it's really a call to compassion. And I thank you for the compassion that you have for all people, but especially our immigrant brothers and sisters. Thank you. Uh, Our topic today leads fantastically into our next episode of Call to Action, which we will have Sister Christine Garcia on, and we'll be talking about the myths around immigration, which I think we kind of touched on a little bit in explaining immigration law and uh, laying that out for people who might not have much exposure to what that's about and what immigrants go through. Till the next session. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Call to Action. I hope you join us for our next conversation airing every other Wednesday. You can listen to past and current episodes of Call to Action by visiting ssndcp.org forward slash call to action or by following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support and remember to follow the School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific Province on Facebook to stay up to date on Call to Action.